Wonderful singing. I almost didn't want to stop. I wanted to keep going. Just to praise God. It's, uh, I'm already crying. But that's good. That's a good thing. Just to praise Him. Well, good morning, everyone. It's so good to see you all here this morning. And as always, it's an honor to open God's Word with all of you and and look at uh, what he has to say. And today we'll get back into Psalms as we take a break from Pastor Brandon and his journey through Matthew. We're going to jump back into the Psalms. and We've called this series a walk through the Psalms. And uh, we're walking through the Psalms because as 2023 keeps going along, we know that that trouble is going to be thrown at us this year. And every year brings with it you know, new trials, new troubles, new challenges. And really, there is no better book in all of the Old Testament to walk through in troubled times than the book of Psalms. And the reason it is, is because when we walk through the Psalms, we can read how each of the writers of these Psalms, they're expressing their deepest sufferings and and distress and all the things that they went through. And so as we read Psalms, we can see how each writer has then changed their perspective as we go on, as we read it, because they begin to view things through, through God's view. They see it through Him. And then that gives, it gave them great comfort and then it gives us great comfort when we read it. And it's for this reason you, you can get a better understanding why the Hebrews, why they always turn these psalms into songs. In fact, the word psalm was taken from a word that means a song sung to harp music. The word psalm means song. It's a song of praise. And we know that throughout Israel's history, they've always sung praises to God when they've, when they've been right before Him. They've always sung His praises. You see it in, in Exodus 15.1 when, when God brought His people out of the captivity in Egypt and He delivered them from Pharaoh's pursuing army, they sang praises to the Lord. And also in Judges chapter 5 when our Lord gave a great victory over Israel over the powerful enemies, they broke out into song. They sang His praises. And then in 1 Chronicles 15, when, when David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, there was so much joy expressed through singing. And over and over we see God's people singing His praises. And so what we have here in the book of Psalms is God's people sharing their troubles and their fears and then their trust and their faith in Yahweh God. And the reason they can have this trust and faith in Yahweh God is because they know the true living God. John Calvin has said, as God reveals Himself, He reveals us. Which means the more we know God, the more He reveals Himself, which helps us better understand our own identity. Because before we can know who we are, we need to know the One who made us and why we're here on earth. And so the more God reveals Himself, the more we'll be able to see ourselves and learn about ourselves. And so we have the book of Psalms that was written by men who lived and went through so many trials and trouble and challenges. And they learned about who God is. And they wrote it down for us. They wrote it down as a comfort to our troubled soul. And so we'll look at Psalm 2 today. And I I titled this message, The Past of the Future. Because as we look at this psalm, we're, we're going to see something written many, many centuries ago, but is being played out right before our eyes today. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to grab it and turn with me to Psalm 2. And as you're turning there, Psalm 2 is really the world as God sees it. 
We live in a world where mankind is in rebellion against God. It's a world that's at war with the truth of God. And we, we try to see, all you have to do is go to any website or pick up a newspaper or go to any news site and you can see how mankind is trying to throw off God's authority. The world is really raging against God. And we can see that once was considered evil is now considered good. That once was things that were hidden away are, are now done in plain sight. And Psalm 2 will show us how God sees all of this and how He's, how he's going to deal with it because there is coming a day when Jesus Christ will reign as King over the earth. So Psalm 2, Psalm 2 starting at verse 1, and God's perfect word reads, Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then He speaks to them in His anger and terrifies them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And there ends the reading of God's Word. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word because again, it's through Your Word that we learn about You. And Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit will be our teacher this morning to open our eyes to Your truths. And Father, forgive me again my shortcomings and please help me stay out of the way and Preach a better message than you have prepared. And Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, ever since Adam and Eve, when they ate of the tree of the garden, which they were commanded not to eat, the human race has been sliding downhill and over the cliff and into the pit of self-destruction. The human race is really moving further and further away from the truth of God. They no longer want to be under the restraints of, the, of God's truth. And because of this, we see the wickedness of man. He's pushing the limits of morality. But really, this is not a surprise because all of this was expected. David wrote this psalm, Psalm 2, some 3,000 years ago, because this is the road mankind has been on ever since the Garden of Eden. And David wrote this to show us that, that God's plans have not failed, or they will not fail. That everything is under God's sovereign control, and He will ultimately triumph in His ordained time. And so it's this psalm that explains our country today. And it's this psalm that explains Gainesville today. And it's this psalm that explains the world in which we're living today. Why are things so out of control? Why are things so dark and wicked? And things that make no sense <laughs> are now normal to the world. Why are we seeing things that just 20 or 30 years ago were considered perverted? They're now normal. Well, as we walk through Psalm 2 today, we're going to we're going to see four different people speaking on why all of this is happening in the world. 
And it's, we see four sections. And in your Bible, you're using, you might already have this psalm broken up into these four sections. There may be some white space between these four sections. So we have four different speakers talking here in this psalm. So first in verses 1 through 3, we have speaking the human race, and what we see is the world's rebellion. The world's rebellion. And then second in verses 4 through 6, we see God the Father is going to speak. And what we see is His ridicule. God the Father's ridicule. And then third in verses 7 through 9, we see God the Son speaking, and what we see is His revelation. God the Son's revelation. And then fourth in verses 10 through 12, we see God the Spirit speaking. And what we see is He has a request. The Holy Spirit's request. Psalm 2, a psalm written by David some 3,000 years ago, shows us why the world is the way it is. And he gives us four different voices that are showing us the world's rebellion, God the Father's ridicule, the Holy Spirit's revelation, and the Holy Spirit's request. And as we look at Psalm 2, we need to remember is that Psalm 2 wasn't the second psalm that was ever written. I don't know if you remember this, but way back when we walked through Psalm 1, we talked about how psalms, they aren't laid out in chronological order. They weren't laid out when they were written. Because the first psalm written was actually Psalm 90. It was written by Moses. And the last psalm ever written was Psalm 126. And what happened was there was a group of men who compiled these psalms after they were written. And that took a span of about a thousand years to write all of these psalms. That means the first psalm was written, Psalm 90 was written around 1400 B.C. And then the last, Psalm 126, was written around 400 B.C. And that's about a thousand years in between. And so we can actually say that it took a thousand years to write the book of Psalms. And these men who compiled all these psalms, they, what they did is they placed this psalm by David as Psalm number 2. And the reason they did that was because, psalm, they, because of Psalm number 1. And they chose to place Psalm number 1 because Psalm number 1, like we talked about, it really sets the tone of the rest of the psalms. And then Psalm number 2 actually does the same thing. So we can say that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, they're really like a, a double gate. Like those big gates that swing open. The rest of the book of Psalms. And it's, it's the entryway into the temple of worship of the Lord. And so the book of Psalms is really a hymn book for Israel. And Psalms and Psalm one and two are they set again they set the foundation for the rest of the Psalms. They're like a pair of gates again that swing open. And we can even see these hinges of these that these gates they 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 rest upon when we look at Psalm one how it opens and then look at how Psalm two closes, because Psalm one begins with how blessed is the man, and Psalm two ends with how blessed are all. They're like two iron gates that swing open to the rest of the Psalms, and they rest on those two verses. There's like the, the hinges there. And Psalm 1 and 2 are the key to understanding the rest of the Psalms, again, because when we read Psalm 1, and we went through it back before Thanksgiving, Psalm 1 shows us that there are two roads in life. There are just two ways that you can go in life. We have the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. There are just two ways. One is headed for destruction, and one is headed for glory. And now here in Psalm 2, it follows Psalm 1 with, we need to be very careful on which road we're on. Because if we're on the road to the wicked, then our Lord Jesus will deal with the wicked with a righteous anger. And so if we choose the path of the wicked, then we're heading down the road of corruption. And that leads us to wanting 
us to throw off God's sovereign control, and that leads to us wanting to break free from the bonds of God's Word and His laws. And so Psalm 1 contrasts the righteous and the sinner, and this sin leads to Psalm 2, which then contrasts the rebellious world because of all that sin and the righteous son. And as we walk through Psalm 2, we'll see that there's a, there's a past and a future meaning going on here, that all this was happening in David's time, but he saw this, this, this surrounding nations rebel against God, but he also wrote down that it's going to get worse. And that's also happening in our time, that double meaning. And David's point is there's coming a day in the future where our Lord Jesus will come again and He will be crowned King of the world. King of kings, Lord of lords. And this is why I titled this message The Past of the Future. Again, Psalm 2 written by David over 3,000 years ago with four different people speaking about the state of the world in which we are living in. And again, we'll hear the world's rebellion, God the Father's ridicule, God the Son's revelation, and the Holy Spirit's request. And so let's dive into God's holy word. First, the first speaker here is humanity, the world's rebellion. The world's rebellion. Verses 1 through 3. And in verse 1, David asks this really big question here. In verse 1, why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? So Psalm 2 begins with that big question why do the nations rage? And rage means uncontrollable anger. (laughs) And notice that it's nations, it's plural. So it's not just one nation, it's not just China. No, it's all of the nations. So why are all the nations in in the world in this uncontrollable anger? They're all in an uproar. They're all in a rage. Why is there so much turmoil and chaos in the world? Why is there so little peace in the world? Well, we know who the first instigator here on planet Earth was. We saw it in Genesis chapter 3. The talking serpent and was really being used by Satan. Satan is the author of this rebellion. Remember, there's only two roads. There's only two ways we can go. Psalm 1 said that the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. The way of the righteous follows Yahweh God. And the way of the wicked follows Satan. And we're all born on the way of the wicked. And Satan will do everything he can to keep us on that road. He doesn't want us getting off that road. So he's going to keep us moving in the direction away from God. And so David asked, why do the nations rage? And the peoples meditate on a vain thing. And again, look at people. It's, it's in plural. <laughs> it's peoples. That's all the people of all the nations. These are the peoples that are on the road of the wicked. And they're not, they're not sitting on the fence. <laughs> they're not trying to decide which road is the best one. No, they've decided. They're all in. They want out with God's truth. They want out with God's law. And look what these people are doing. They're meditating on a vain thing. Meditating. Meditating means they're in deep thought. They're planning. They're they're completely focused on this vain thing. They're all in. And they're all in on it together. This vain thing. That means they have a high opinion of themselves. That's what vain means, right? It means pride. It's a prideful opinion of themselves and what they can do. They think if we all just pull together, if we all just come together as one world, we can do it. Because it's vain, that means it's useless. It's, it's pointless and insane. And so why then are they meditating on such a thing? Well, it's because of sin. Sin corrupts, corrupts the brain. 
Sin corrupts the brain, which causes it not to function properly. Sin corrupts the brain so much that a person, that a person has, uh, they have no more common sense. They can't reason anymore. They can't understand things anymore. Sin is really like a downward spiral that just continues to, to spin down and down. It spins so far down that in actually irrational things, absurd things, ludicrous things begin to make sense. We know there's two roads, one of the righteous and one of the unrighteous, and the unrighteous road leads some further away from God's truth. And the further some travels down that road, the more sinful and wicked someone becomes. People start living out for what their heart desires, and our heart is wicked. And if we keep moving in that direction we actually get to the point where God will, will give them over and let them pursue their sin. Paul tells us about that in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, in verses 18-25, through 25, Paul tells us this is where the unrighteous road is going to lead to. You can just listen to this. Romans 1, beginning at verse 18. This is what Paul wrote. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, both His internal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify God as God and give thanks to Him, but they became futile Futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And here's what Paul goes on. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions for their females exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the males abandoned the natural function of the female and burned in desire towards one another. Males with males committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And we come to verse 28 of Romans 1. Paul says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, here it comes, God gave them over to an unfit mind to do those things which are not proper. God gave them over to an unfit mind. That's a mind that's so clouded by sin that they can no longer make good moral judgments. It's, it's, it's at the stage that man has lost the desire and the ability to think clearly. He has lost his mind and doesn't even know it, which results in a world that has left God far behind. In all society, with all its restraints, they want it removed. They want a culture divided. They, they just don't even know what right or wrong is anymore. They want to do what every man wants to do right in his own eyes. The way of the wicked, the total depravity of the human race. It's really, it's really God saying to, to the way of the wicked, okay, if you want to turn away from Me, I'll let you go. I won't try to stop you but you will have to face the consequences of your actions. And it's one, of the, it's one of the sad facts of life that the more someone sins, the easier it actually is to sin. And so this unfit mind leads the nations to rage against God 
and His righteousness. And so as we go back to Psalm 2, it starts off with this question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? And so just how high up the ladder does this, does this go? Is it just the common people who are raging and meditating on this horrible thing? Well, look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and His anointed. So it begins at the top. It starts with those who are leading those nations. Notice again, it's in the plural. The kings of the earth. So it's not just one king, it's, it's all the kings of the earth. They all band together. And it says they take their stand. So they're digging their heels in. They're, they're, they're standing tall in stubborn disobedience against God and defiance. They're taking their stance against God. They're actually drawing the line in the sand against God. But it's not just the kings because it says the rulers take counsel together. And so now it's, it's all the political leaders. It's, it seems like political leaders can never come together on anything. Whether it's economics, laws, regulations, none of those things. They, they can't come together in any of those. But here it says they can. They can all come together for one thing, and it's their, their defiance against God, God Almighty and His moral law that would be placed upon them. They, they reject the way of the righteous. And so the kings and the rulers, they all come together and they, and they put their, their, their sinful, unrighteous brains together and, and their unfit minds and they try to find a way to break free of God's moral standard. And really, I, we see this happening today. We can see it. And this is why the world's in a mess morally and intellectually and socially and politically and economically. All these because it's defiled God. The nations and the kings and the rulers have defiled God. But look who else they've defiled. The last part of verse 2. Against Yahweh and against His anointed. His anointed. That's our Lord Jesus. Jesus is the anointed one. We ask the question, how can we be so sure? Well, because we have the English word Messiah, which comes from the Hebrew word Meshach, which means to anoint, the anointed king. But why is the Lord Jesus called the Anointed One? Because Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Anointed King. He's the prophet, priest, and king. In the Old Testament, kings, priests, and prophets were all anointed with oil outwardly to symbolize that God's presence was upon them and His favor was on them. And when our Lord Jesus, in fact, when He began His, his public ministry in Nazareth, in Luke chapter 4, He he took the scroll and he read it. He looked for it and he read in Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1, which says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the Gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind and to set those free who opposed Him and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then our Lord Jesus said to those in the synagogue, He said, Today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And when the New Testament speaks of Jesus Christ, we, we all need to remember that Christ isn't His last name. Christ is a title. Christ means Messiah. And so it's, it's Jesus the Messiah, which literally means Jesus the Anointed One. Christ is the Greek term for Anointed One, just like Messiah is Hebrew term for Anointed One. And God has promised an Anointed King for His people. Well, we can ask the question, then why wasn't David or Solomon, why couldn't they be called the Anointed King? They were anointed 
But remember, God's anointed one is a king, prophet, and priest, all wrapped into one. David and Solomon weren't priests or prophets. They were kings. Only one was ever all three. Our Lord Jesus is the only one and only anointed King of Kings. And so in Luke chapter 1, in fact, the angel Gabriel comes and tells Mary that she's going to give birth to Jesus the Messiah. Gabriel said to Mary in, in Luke 1, chapter 1, in verses 32 and 33, this is what Gabriel said to Mary, said of Jesus, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him a throne of, of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And there will be no end to his kingdom. So there is coming a day when the Lord Jesus will come back and he will rule and reign as King of Kings from Jerusalem over the entire world. But getting back to Psalm 2, what we see here is these kings, these leaders and peoples, they're, 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 coming to, they're coming against the Lord and they're saying, no thanks, we, do, we don't want you. We don't want to live under your anointed one. Thanks, but no thanks. And what this shows us here is that if you're against God Almighty, you're also against His Anointed One, His Son, Jesus Christ. And now look at verse 3. Look at what these kings and these leaders are saying. Verse 3, they say, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Let's tear off these fetters. What's a fetter? Well, a fetter is a chain or a shackle. It's, it's something used to restrain something. So they don't want anything restraining them or holding them back. People want to do what they want to do, when they want, where they want, and with whom they want. They don't want anyone telling them it's wrong. So they don't want anyone telling them that, that men can't have babies. They don't want anyone telling them that, what gender they are. They don't want anyone telling them that they can't marry someone of the same sex. They, they don't want anyone telling them what a family is. They don't want anyone trying to tie them down with the righteous laws from a righteous God. So they don't want God's righteousness. They don't want His righteous plan for the family. They don't want God's righteous plan for salvation. They want none of that. They don't want none of these outdated, old-fashioned chains that restrain them. And really, when we look at the history of the world, this is what we see. And again, it all started with Adam in the garden. And it's going on right now, up till today. And it will continue until the Lord comes back. It's a rebellion. It's a resistance to God to God Almighty, His Anointed One, Jesus Christ. And this resistance is all going to come to an end. It's going to come to a climax during the second coming. Because it tells us that in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 19. In Revelation 19, 19 it says, And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, so here's these kings from Psalm 2, and their armies assembled to make war with Him. That's our Lord Jesus. So in the future, this great battle of Armageddon, the kings and armies of the world, their minds are so perverted, they're so clouded with sin, they all gather together and they try to do battle with the Lord Jesus. They're so far gone that, that they're willing to go to war against the Anointed One to try to save their way of living for pleasure. They're, they're living for the desires of their wicked heart. They're in rebellion and they actually gather together with the hopes of defeating the one they hate. And this is the future battle, the last hope of humanity of breaking the fetters of the Lord. But we know who wins in the end. We know how this all comes out in the end. So what this shows us is that things will not get better. Things are not going to improve. 
that, they will, that, that we cannot make this world a better place. There are some who believe that we can make the world ready for the Anointed One, the King of Kings, to come back and reign, but God's Word tells us that the world is not going to get better. No, it's going to continue to go on the road of wickedness and sink deeper and deeper into rebellion against Almighty God and His Anointed One. And again, we can see it all around us today. We see everything increasing in rebellion, and this rebellion is increasing in speed. As it goes down the road, it, away from God, it's, like, it's almost like it's going down a steep hill. It just keeps picking up speed. I heard it said that in the, in the last 20 years, we've seen more changes in society than there's been in the last 100 years. And really, we've seen more changes in society in the last 20 years than there's been over the last you know, 100 years. But we could almost say that in the last two years, we've seen so much change in society as this downhill speed, wanting to break free from God, just continues to, to move faster and faster. Today, we have more people demanding freedom to do what their sinful heart desires. We see more people demanding more freedom for abortion. We see more people demanding freedom for euthanasia, or more freedom for transgender operations, more freedom for homosexuality and lesbianism, more freedom for free sex and pornography, more freedom for perverting our children, and whatever else they can come up with that goes against God. And so here in Psalm 2, written again almost over 3,000 years ago, it gives us a clear understanding of why the world is going the way it's going. And so Psalm 2 begins with the first one to speak, and it was humanity. The world's rebellion. The world's rebellion that the kings and leaders of this world, they're, they're digging in their heels. They're making a stand against God. They're waving their fist in stubborn defiance. They and the peoples of the world don't want to live under God's law. They don't want to live under God's righteous laws. They're against God, and what that means is they're against His anointed one, His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. They don't want to submit to our Lord Jesus or have Him reign as their King. So now in verses 4-6, through six, we come to the second one speaking here. We now get to hear what the Lord God the Father thinks of all this. What does He think? We see God the Father's ridicule. So now God's going to speak. But before He does, David's going to, in verses 4 and 5, He's going to set the scene in heaven for us. Starting at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord mocks them. The he here is God Almighty. He sits in the heavens. And notice, this is really interesting. God is sitting on His throne in the heavens. So what that's showing us is God's not pacing back and forth. He's not worrying about what's going on. He's, he's not shaking His head or wringing His hands. He's not biting His nails. He's not, he's not wondering, why won't anyone accept my son? What should I do? Why are they doing this to me? How can we be so sure about this? Well, because we have, again, in Revelation chapter 4, when the Apostle John was coming to the end of his life, remember he was exiled to the island of Patmos, and there he was actually caught up into the third heaven. A door was open for him to get a glimpse of the throne room in heaven. And John got to take a peek in there. And what he remembered most about that peak wasn't the streets of gold, it wasn't the gates of pearl, or even who was there or who wasn't there, but it was seeing the throne in heaven, and which really is the center of the universe. And not only the throne, but the one seated upon it. And this sight, it, it just took John's breath away. And here in Psalm 2, this is what David is writing about. This is the same God Almighty who's sitting on His throne in heaven. And what we see here in Psalm 2 is God doesn't even get off His throne 
to deal with this. No, He's seated in perfect peace. Perfect assurance. And this throne is the center of the universe because it's from this throne everything happens on this earth or in the universe. It must pass through that throne. Nothing happens that the Lord God Almighty doesn't allow. All things go through Him. So what does God do when the kings and leaders and people stand together against Him and His Son? David says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. And this isn't a laughter of joy, but it's a laughter of ridicule. For man to rise up against God, to try to live without God, how ridiculous is that? Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 15. Isaiah 40, 15 says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as a speck of dust on the scales. How in the world could these nations who are like a speck of dust rise up against the Almighty God? So God laughs. It is truly in insanity. It's insane to go against God, the perfect, holy, good God who is creator of everything. In fact, the one who created the earth on which we live on, the one who created our bodies with lungs, and the one who created air for those lungs for us to breathe, the one who created our bodies with a heart, a heart that beats and pumps blood throughout our body to give us life, and the one who is in control of every beat of that heart. Everything we have is from God. That they should rise up against Him is insane. Again, it's showing us just what perpetual sin will do to the human brain. And then next in verse 4, David says, the Lord mocks them. This, this name here for Lord, it means sovereign one. The ruler with a supreme authority. And he mocks them. He laughs with a laugh of ridicule because God's kingdom is secure. And the king has been established. And Jesus is God's king. God Almighty ridicules these rebellious ones against His authority and the perfect King. In Psalm 33, it tells us more about God's supreme authority. In Psalm 33, verses 8-12, through 12, it says, Let all the earth fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it was, and He commanded and it stood. Here's why God mocks them. Yahweh nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the thoughts of peoples. The counsel of Yahweh stands forever in the thoughts of His heart from generation to generation. God Almighty has no plan B in heaven. God is working everything out just as it's supposed to be. So it says the Lord mocks them. And David goes on in verse 5. Then He speaks to them in His anger. So God doesn't just laugh, He speaks to them in anger. And this word for anger means like a flaring of the nostrils. I don't know if we've ever, you've ever been that angry where your nostrils are flaring. So that's an intense, passionate anger. This shows us that God's not an unfeeling stoic. We know that we tend to think of God as only love. But we forget that God does get angry at unrighteousness. But the good news is, His anger is always under control and is always righteous. So here in Psalm 2, it says if we have God in the hands of angry sinners, but there is coming a day when sinners will be in the hands of an angry God. And so what will that day be like when sinners are in the hands of an angry God? Well, the rest of verse 5. David writes, and it terrifies them in his fury. This word for fury, it means to set ablaze. So it's really a red-hot fury. Just let that sink in for a moment. 
How terrifying is that to even think about? That God having a red-hot fury, a burning wrath against wickedness. But really, it has to be this way. You can ask why. Because God is holy God. And if God doesn't respond to this wicked unrighteousness, He wouldn't be a holy God. His is a divine anger of righteous fury. And just in case we might think that, uh, well, because God is love, He could just look the other way. Or, or maybe our wickedness or our evil, it really isn't that bad. Well, let's look at some other verses in the book of Psalms and see what it says about how God feels about sin and the sinner. If you want, you can turn with me over to Psalm 5 or just listen. Psalm 5 and verses 4 and 5. And this might surprise some of us here this morning about God's, what God's Word has to say about our wickedness. Psalm 5 and verses 4 and 5, it tells us this. Psalm 5, starting at verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil does not stay with you. And then in verse 5 it says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all workers of iniquity. Have you ever heard that expression that God hates the sin but loves the sinner? Well, that's not what it says here in Psalm 5. It says you hate all workers of iniquity. So does that mean that God hates sin and the sinner? Well, I think it does. But the good news is, is because God is God and there is no one like Him, He can hate sin and the sinner but also love the sinner. God both hates and loves the sinner at the same time. How can that be? Well, hang on. We'll get to that in a bit. Let's look at verse 6, still in Psalm 5. Psalm 5 and verse 6 goes on and says, You destroy those who speak falsehood. Yahweh abhors. And this word abhors, it's actually a stronger word than hate. It says, Yahweh abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. If you want to flip up to Psalm 7, Psalm 7 and verse 11, Here's the reason why we never have to worry about someone getting away with sin. <laughs> There's not one sin that God isn't aware of, no matter how big or how small. Psalm 11, 7.11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. So God has indignation. That's anger. That's not just on the last day. That's not just on judgment day, but that's every day. And so it seems to us that God doesn't always judge as quickly as we'd like Him to, but injustice does not escape His eye. And one day He will judge righteously. And look at verse 12 of Psalm, verse 12 of Psalm 7. Verse 12 says, If a man does not repent, he, that's God, will sharpen his sword. He, God, has bent his bow and prepared it. So here in Psalm 7, again, written by David, David is painting us a picture of God as a warrior who's going to battle against the wicked, those who refuse to repent. But remember, again, God can hate the sinner and at the same time love the sinner. So how does He show His love for those in sin? Well, He shows His love to sinners who, who hate sin by, by giving them an opportunity to judge their own sinful behavior and then turn from it. God is always ready to forgive and repent. They're a repented heart. But if someone refuses to repent, He will judge them. And let's look at one more example of how God feels about the sinner and the sin. Flip over to Psalm 9. Psalm 9 and verses 7 and 8. God is offering humankind forgiveness, but 
because He is holy, there will come a day when He will judge the wicked. Psalm 9, in verses 7 and 8, it says, But Yahweh abides forever. He establishes His throne for judgment, and He will judge the world in righteousness. How terrifying is it going to be for sinners to be in the hands of an angry God? This is why we don't want to be on the road of the wicked. We want to repent and submit and be on the way of the righteous. And the only way we can be on the road of the righteous is through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Psalm 9, it gets even more terrifying in verses 19 and 20. Because here in 19 and 20, we see the nations from Psalm 2 here again, just like we did in Revelation. Here's what's happening to those nations from Psalm 2. Verse 19 of Psalm 9. It says, Arise, O Yahweh, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. And then verse 20, Put them in fear, O Yahweh. Let the nations know that they are but men. These nations, these kings, these leaders, these people who are in rebellion against God will be dealt with by God. And as you notice that all these descriptions of God and His hatred of wickedness and being a righteous judge are right near the beginning of the Psalms. These verses about God hating sin and judging wickedness, they're not tucked away in the Psalms. They're not back in Psalm the 150. No, the compilers put them right in the front so we can know who God is and how He feels about sin. We need to understand who God is so we can worship Him as He is and how we should. And so Psalm 1 and 2, again, they're the gates that swing open to the rest of the Psalms. And so we barely start walking through them and we're hit right in the face with who God is and His holiness, and there's a way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. Which road are you on? So let's go back to Psalm 2. Back to one of the gates, the doorway to this book. Psalm 2, where where we're looking at verse 5. David is, is again, setting a scene for us in heaven as God the Father and and God the Son are talking about what's going on on earth and this rebellion. And then verse 5, it says, And he speaks to them in his anger. And terrifies them in his fury, saying, so now here's God going to speak. Verse 6. Verse 6. But as for me, I have installed my king. But as for me, here's God saying, you kings, you leaders, you people, you might say in your wicked pride that you're going to rebel against me, that you're not going to submit to me or my anointed king. But as for me, this is God the Father saying, I have installed my king, God the Son, upon Zion, my holy mountain, so as we look back in history, we can see that God has installed His kings in Israel. But ultimately here, this is looking forward to the day when this will be fulfilled. This will be fulfilled when the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, will reign and rule the world. And this word installed, notice it's in the past tense. So that means it's a done deal. It's already done. It's already done. We're just waiting for Him to come back and rule He's already been installed. We're just waiting for His return. Because right now, He's in heaven. He's sitting at the Father's right hand in the place of the highest honor and the highest authority. God the Father has given to His Son all authority in heaven and earth. He's given to Him all judgment, all dominion, as God is seated, His Son, at His right hand. And one day He will. It's done deal. He'll come back and He will rule from Zion, my holy mountain. So what does this teach us? It teaches us that man puts forward an idea, but God throws it away. I heard, or I, heard, I heard Steve Lawson say this, man proposes, but God disposes. 
So who's really in control? Now we live in a world that's in defiance against God, but God's in complete control. At this time, God is allowing this world to go in the direction it's going, but there is coming a day when God will say, enough, and then look out. Psalm 2 is letting us see why this world is so out of control. It's growing more and dark and wicked. It's showing us how good became evil and evil good. So first, again, we saw the world's rebellion. Second, we see God the Father's ridicule. And now third, we hear from God the Son. And we get His revelation. It's God the Son's revelation. So here's what what God the Son, our Lord Jesus, thinks about all this. He's going to speak. Verse 7. It says, I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So again, verse 7 begins, I. The I is the anointed one, Jesus Christ. Christ means anointed, so Jesus is speaking. And what does He say? I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. So He, God the Father, said to me, God the Son, you are my son. And the rest of verse 7, today I have begotten you. So, does this mean that God the Father made God the Son? No, that's not what this means. Because there's never been a time when God the Son didn't exist. He is the eternal Son of God. Co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father. God the Son has always been. So what does this mean then? Today I have begotten you. What is our Lord Jesus saying here? Well, we find the answer in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13 and verse 33. Acts 13.33 says, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that He raised up Jesus as it also is written in the second psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. That God has fulfilled this promise in He that He raised up Jesus. So what day was Jesus raised up? The day of the resurrection. Resurrection Sunday or Easter. So our Lord Jesus laid His life down on the cross and then God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit raised Him from the dead. And on the third day, the earth delivered up a Son. And on the third day, our Lord Jesus was delivered from the grave. Our Lord Jesus came walking out of the tomb as a living, victorious Savior. And, and He also was, now has the key of Hades and death in His hand. And so what that means now is no one will ever enter into the grave or no one will ever leave the grave without His supreme authority. There's no more sting in death. He crushed death, mankind's great enemy. And so here in Psalm 2, we have a a very early prophecy of our Lord Jesus' resurrection. God the Father made a promise to King David that the Messiah would be raised from the dead. We see it in Psalm Psalm 16 in verse 10. In Psalm 16.10, David wrote this, For you will not forsake my soul to shoal. You will not leave your Holy One over to see corruption. David understood this promise by God to mean that he's he's not going to abandon him or God's promised seed in the grave. That the first anointed one, the Messiah, will be raised from the grave and then all other believers will be raised in the future as well from the grave. And so God the Father's promise to David was kept through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead. In fact, all the promises made to David are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So Jesus says today, I've begotten you. And when we see the word begotten, it doesn't mean that our Lord Jesus was created, but that He's a unique, one of a kind, who died in our place and rose on the third day and is at right now at the seated at the Father. Right hand of the Father. And now, because our Lord Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand, God the Son speaks and He says, 
I will surely tell you of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And now in verse 8, God the Father speaks again. He answers the Son. Verse 8. God the Father says, Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. So he's saying, here God the Father is saying to the Son, Ask me. Just ask me and I'll surely give you. There's no doubt. I will surely give you as your inheritance the nations. So all these nations that are in rebellion, these, these prideful, strutting nations that are against us, just ask of me my son, and I will give him to you as your inheritance. And an inheritance is something passed down from a father to a son. And then verse 8 closes with, and, and, and the ends of the earth as your possession. That means that all these rebellious, prideful, wicked nations which God the Father created and has provided for and has determined their very existence are his to give his son as an inheritance. All throughout history, we see the rise and fall of nations. And in Acts chapter 17 and verse 26, we see the reason why. In Acts 17, 26, it says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to inhibit all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So God the Father is saying to God the Son, just ask and I'll, I'll give you as an inheritance all the nations of the earth. I will give them to you because I formed them, I provided for them, I determined their boundaries and their mind to give to you. And what does God the Father command His Son to do when He, when he inherits them? Look at verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. When these defiant nations become our Lord Jesus' inheritance, he's, he's to crush them, He's to destroy them. Here's, here it's not an inheritance to save them, but an inheritance to smash them. And look at the rest of verse 9. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So these, these poor nations, these, these poor rebellious nations, they're in such big trouble. What we are looking at here in verse 9 is the future day when God the Son will end the rebellion against God the Father. It's a time of the final judgment for all those who are on the path of the wicked. This is the great white throne of judgment that's coming for all those who are not on the road of the righteous, the children of God. And here in verse 9, we see a world picture. The world is pictured as an earthen vessel made from clay, and God the Father hands over the Son an iron scepter, the kind that a king would hold, and then God the Son uses that iron scepter on the earthen vessel, shattering it into a million pieces, never to be put back together again. How terrifying is it to be in the hands of an angry God? Jonathan Edwards preached a tremendous sermon with the title, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He did that in 1741. That saying comes right out of Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 30 and 31, it says, for we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. This is why we really don't want to be on the road of the wicked. Here in Psalm 2, this is God speaking to the Son. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. Here we see God's plan for dealing with rebellious man, Satan, and his forces. And God the Father's plan involves the second person of the Trinity, His eternal Son. 
who will return to earth in power and put down all rebellion and rule in righteousness. And again, Psalm 2, written by David 3,000 years ago, is showing us why our world keeps getting darker and darker. More rebellious against God and our Lord. And this is the world in which we live in. But God the Son, God the Son who was rejected in His first coming will come again a second time, and He will smash the rebellion to rule and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. And so here in Psalm 2, we've, we've seen the world's rebellion. We've, we've seen God's ridicule. Third, we've seen our Lord Jesus' revelation. And now fourth, we see the Holy Spirit's going to make a request. I love how these psalms always, they don't end on a bad note. This has been kind of, a, kind of a rough part right now going through all this to hear this. But it is the truth. It is God's Word. This is, what, this is where we're going. But now, the fourth, the Holy Spirit makes a request. We come to the amazing part of this psalm because we've seen the rebellion of man. We've seen God the Father laughing at this rebellion. We've seen God the Son report on what He's going to do. But all this hasn't happened yet. This is all future. So it's not too late to get off this road of the wicked, off this path of destruction, because now we come to God the Father's grace. God the Spirit will now show us God's wonderful grace. Yes, there's terrible judgment coming, but right now we still live in grace. There's still time before it's too late to get off the road of destruction. We come to the free offer, the good news, the offer of the gospel, and starting at verse 10. Verse 10, So now, O king, show insight, take warning, O judges of the earth. Here we see the emotion. You can just see it when you see the word O. There's a pleading. O kings, wake up, wise up. Don't you realize that you're about to be subject to the King of Kings. And then we see the word to the wise. It says, take warning, O, o judges of the earth. Again, that O. Oh. So you judges, take warning. Because you're about to be judged yourselves. You earthly judges who have judged with corruption, you're one day going to stand before the Anointed One, the judge of heaven and earth. The one you've rebelled against. And He will judge you in perfect righteousness. And when he does, it, it's not going to go well for you. So take warning. Think about this carefully. So what should they do? What should they do? Here's the request. Verse 11. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. You, know, you want to know what to do? <laughs> He's saying repent and worship the Lord with reverence. Come and bow down before Him Give Him the glory He deserves. Surrender your life to Him. Stop worshiping yourself. Stop living for yourself. Stop worshiping creation instead of the Creator. Stop worshiping the passions of your lust and worship the Lord. Surrender to Him as Lord. Love and honor and fear with reverence. And when you do, He will take you off the road of destruction. He will place you then on the road of glory. You need to rejoice in this time of mercy and grace, because it's not too late. And this again, how can God both hate and love the sinner? Because what could we ever do to deserve this kind of grace and mercy? There's nothing we can do to deserve this kind of grace. To think about all those who are in rebellion against God and His Son, and that He's going to judge the world, and righteousness, but the love of God is that He still offers grace right now to those who are rebelling. 
to fall onto the hand to fall into the hands of, of an angry God is the most terrifying truth there is. But it's in this God that lies our only hope. That means there is no refuge from Him, only in Him. In Him, there's the hope of salvation. There's the hope of mercy. But it won't be offered forever. Verse 12. It says, Kiss the Son, lest He become angry, and you perish in your way. So why kiss the Son? What does that mean? Well, in historical background, back in the day when it when a great king would conquer a lesser king, the defeated king would be, would be dragged into the palace of the great king who would be sitting high upon his throne and the defeated king would then have to come in, fall on his knees in submission and literally kiss the feet of the conquering king. And it was all done to show the king's great victory and it was also done to show the king, it was the king's way of showing to all of those that he is going to spare the life of the defeated king. And David is using this kind of imagery here to get the point, to get a, give us the point. Kiss the Son. Submit to the Lord Jesus. Give reverence, give praise to the King of Kings. And notice it says here, least he become angry. So he's not full on angry yet. So there's still time, there's still mercy, there's still grace, but time is running out. And the rest of verse 12, for his wrath may soon be kindled. The Lord Jesus is coming back. So praise and submit to Him. Because the first time He came, He came as a lamb to save. But the second time He comes, He's coming as a lion in wrath to judge. And so today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to call on Him. Don't put, a, don't put off tomorrow what you can do today. Because you don't know what tomorrow will bring. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. So while it's still today, enter into His mercy. And then the end of this psalm, we see one more invitation as this, this blessed door of grace is still wide open. The end of verse 12. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And blessed again is in plural. That, that's many blessings. It's, 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 it's grace upon grace. And what we see here in Psalm 2 is those who defy God are broken, but those who depend on Him are blessed. There's two roads, right? The blessed and the broken and Psalm 2 shows us that we need to be saved. But really, what do we do? But what we really need to be saved from, when you think about it, is God. We need to be saved from God. Have you ever thought about that? And God is the only one who can save us from God. God Himself is the one who saves us from Him. Verse 12 says, How blessed are all. Here's the free offer of the gospel, and it's offered to all, even those who are on the road of the wicked. But here's the requirement. All who take refuge in Him. In Him. So it's not a religion. It's not a church. It's not baptism. It's not in works. But it's in the Anointed One. God the Son. The Lord Jesus Christ. And the refuge is 100% trust our life to this coming King. There's only one place for refuge. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. Acts 4.12 says, And... There is salvation in no one else, for there is no one under the name of heaven that has been given among men, which we must be saved. There is no other Savior. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And so as we, as we conclude, as we wrap this up today. Today the nations rage. They're in, they're in total rebellion against God the Father. 
They're traveling down the road of the wicked. They're, they're picking up speed. We can see it. It's happening right now. But God isn't just wringing His hands. <laughs> He's not just wringing His hands in fear. In fact, God laughs in ridicule at these leaders. God is sovereign and everything is happening as He said. God the Son who was rejected on His first coming is coming again a second time. He's going to shatter the nations, the kings, the leaders, and the people who are rebelling against Him. And He's going to rule and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. It's already done. And how terrifying will it be to be in the hands of an angry God? But it's not too late. There's still time. There's still time to turn off the road of rebellion, to repent and bow and worship. The door of God's grace is still open. And there's still time. In Psalm 2, it lays it all out for us. It lays it on the line. And it's blunt and it's straightforward. I was going to maybe skip over this. It was so blunt. I'm like, let's go to Psalm, the next Psalm. But we need to hear it. This is, this is the Word of the living God. And it's heavy. And it's not light. And it's not fluffy. And again, Psalm 1 starts off with, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And it's, this is the road we're all born on. We're, we, we come into the world with sin, uh, rebelling against God. We're actually all born into verse, verse 9 of Psalm 2. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. We're born rebelling against God. We're outside the kingdom. We're on our way to destruction and His wrath. And God hates sin and He hates the sinner, but God also loves the sinner because God has made a way for sinners to be made right, to exit off the road of the wicked and onto the road of the righteous. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, the Apostle Paul tells us this, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates His own love towards us that in, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sinners will suffer God's wrath, but... God saves sinners from His wrath through Himself. Why? Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 4 and 6. Paul said in Ephesians 1, 4 and 6, he said, just as He chose us in Him. When did God do this? Paul goes on, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. Why did God do this? Was it because we're so special? Because we're so good? No, Paul says, he goes on, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glory and of His grace, which He graciously bestowed on us in the Beloved. Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, Our Lord Jesus loved us not because of anything in us. No, He loved us in spite of what was in us. He loved the ungodly while yet we were sinners. So in all our unworthiness and vileness, He loved us. God is God and He can love and hate at the same time. And all of those who are on the way of the wicked, all those that are in rebellion of Him today, they're coming to a day of judgment. But today there is still time. God's grace is like a door that's open wide. In fact, in John chapter 10 and verse 9, our Lord Jesus said this. In John 10, 9, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. When we repent and put our faith in Christ, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for your word and how it shows us who we are. And Father, this was a little thick today. It was a little hard. But we need to hear it, Father. We need to be hit in the face with your truth like a mirror showing us who we are, who we were, hopefully who we were. And Father, we are so thankful that long before we ever sinned, You had a plan in place. Long before we ever sinned, You were, you were already chosen, You'd chosen Your people. And long before we ever sinned, You sent Your Son into the world. And we praise You that You are always way out in front of everything. And we pray that, Father, You humble our hearts and cause us to rejoice in Your amazing grace. And Father, we ask all this in Your name. Amen.